So as Anne already mentioned, the title of this talk is Equanimity, Our Greatest Friend. And I'd like to begin with a verse. And this verse is from one of the poems, the Enlightenment Songs of the Early Buddhists. It says, if your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes, in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. I quite love this verse. I find it really inspiring and I've, I often repeat it to myself and just sort of, it reminds me to stay steady and to have that sense of the inner friend this quality of having a mind that we trust, that is our own friend, I think is something that most people would actually like. And it's the stability of mind that is called equanimity, or in Pali, upeka. Equanimity implies a complete openness to experience so that we're not lost in reactions of desire and aversion. We're not lost in the movements of loving some things and hating others. Ajahn Chah said, Ajahn Chah is a great forest um, teacher in the forest tradition in Thailand. He said, the heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging to love and hate. Just rest with things as they are. This is all I do in my own practice. So if you ever find all those meditation instructions just a little too technical, simplify it yourself for yourself. Give up clinging to love and hate. Release all that reactivity about what we like and don't like. And just rest with things as they are. That's all one needs to do in their practice. Equanimity is a powerful quality in its own right, but it also has the power of fortifying other wholesome states of mind. Equanimity endows metta, loving-kindness, with patience. And this is very important for anybody undertaking the development of loving-kindness or any of the, the, the qualities of joy or compassion. Because it's the equanimity that allows us to stay caring, to stay loving, to stay kind and open and connected, even when, for example, a friend continues um, on destructive um, personal habits. We may have all the loving kindness in the world for them, but that loving kindness may not change their behavior. And yet we don't need to close our hearts to them. And it's the, it's the way that equanimity infuses metta that allows it to remain balanced and open and loving, even in very difficult situations. Because without equanimity, the tendency is to demand that happiness manifests the way that we want it to. And happiness just doesn't cooperate that way. It doesn't cooperate that way in our own lives, and it certainly can't cooperate that way in somebody else's life. It's an amazing and wonderful thing to wish for somebody to be happy and to not control what that's supposed to look like. Equanimity also endows compassion, or karuna, with courage. Courage to stay present in the face of pain. We care so deeply in this world, and I know all of you do or you would not spend your Sunday morning coming to a meditation group like this. But we can't always help. 
But compassion doesn't withdraw from the experience. Compassion stays open as we help and when we realize there's no more that we can do to help. And there's an interesting story in the um, Buddha's discourses where one of his um, great, one of his lay disciples, Anathapindika, came and spoke with the Buddha, um, and he told the story of one of his relatives. And Anathapindika was a very, very wealthy merchant of his time, and was a great supporter of the Dharma, of the monks, of the nuns, of the meditation community. He also was a great supporter of um, charities and um, did a lot for his family and was just known for his giving. And he had given a great sum of money over, over some time to, a, I believe it was a cousin or, or a relative of some sort, who, um, to, to start a business, to kind of get his life together, to kind of get things going for himself. But this relative was a spendthrift and a gambler. And everything that that Anathapindika gave him would just get squandered away. And this went on and on and on until finally Anathapindika said no, he wouldn't give any more. And so when when his friend, when his relative came again to, to request for money, he declined him. And it wasn't long after that um, that he, 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 he very quickly declined socially. Um, he was poor, um, destitute, he still gambled, he went into debt, he was pursued by debtors, and um, not long after died. And because he didn't have money for their, for, to even purchase firewood, his body was just discarded on a garbage heap outside. And when Anathavindika found out about this horrible demise, he went to the Buddha feeling like, God, should I have done something more? You know, was there something more I could have done? Feeling um, kind of bad that, you know, he has all this wealth and then his, his, his cousin's body is just, you know, disposed there. I think they did, like, burn it, but basically he was already dead. Um, the interesting thing was that the Buddha said that there was nothing more Anathapindika could have done. He did what he had done and that this was now what he could do to help and that this was now the time for equanimity. And I think we all have situations in our lives where we try as best we can to help, but sometimes there's a limit to either what we can control or what we have as our own ability or our own capacities. So there are times when we all need equanimity, and that's especially when we can do nothing else. Equanimity is a state of balance, of radiant calmness of mind and spacious stillness, a quality of radiant presence that pervades our activities as we're engaged in life, when we're doing the things, and pervades the moments of stillness when we're not. It is not withdrawal, indifference, coldness, or hesitation. These qualities include an aspect of aversion. Equanimity has no aversion in it. I sense it a lot as that radiance of calmness. There's a clarity and a, and a, a peacefulness that imbues the stillness. Equanimity accepts the world exactly as it is and connects anyway. 
Dolly Parton said, the way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. My mentor, Christopher Titmus, and I were having a conversation about equanimity some time ago. And he, um, he, he said something in the conversation that structured the way that I've approached equanimity in my practice. And he just very succinctly said that there are two important areas to have equanimity around. Okay, my mind can get around two. It's a nice short list. <laughs> and those two areas are equanimity around painful and pleasant experiences, that whole dynamic of pleasure and pain, and equanimity around future results. So this um, two-part system has been my guide for practicing and developing equanimity. And it's basically the structure of the remainder of this talk. So first I want to discuss a little bit this equanimity of painful and pleasant. Because equanimity is needed to remain balanced in this whole movement between pleasure and pain. How many people have had pleasure today? How many people have had pain today? Oh, some people will only raise their hands for one. I don't think there's an hour that goes by that I don't get both. I don't think there's even a five minutes that go by that, that I don't get both. We're constantly shifting between these movements of pleasure and pain. Our minds may, may grasp onto one as being louder or more dominant. But there are so many little experiences that are pleasant and so many little experiences that are painful and a fluctuation between the two. In fact, almost anything that's pleasant, if you stay with it long enough, it'll become unpleasant. <laughs> I like to think of just something simple like eating a brownie. I like brownies. Well, how long can you chew a brownie before you just got to swallow the thing to get it, like, rid of it? Um, how many things that are painful? Actually, once you get adjust, you can adjust to it, or you can explore different aspects of the pain in such a way that it's not one monolithic experience of pain. Very often, a, say, a, a pain in the, in the back or the shoulder may have moments of warmth. They may have moments of, of, of a coolness or a tingling that actually is a mixture of pain and pleasure. Now I want to read a little, a little quote on the, on the Buddha's approach to this. On seeing a form with the eye, it's a little classic language, but just follow through. I think you'll follow with it. On seeing a form with the eye, he does not lust after it if it is pleasing. He does not dislike it if it is unpleasing. He abides with mindfulness of the body established with an immeasurable mind, and he understands, as it actually is, the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom, wherein those evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. Having thus abandoned favoring and opposing, whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, he does not delight in that feeling, welcome it or remain holding to it. As he does not do so, delight in feeling ceases in him. With the cessation of his delight comes the cessation of clinging. With the cessation of clinging, cessation of being. With the cessation of being, cessation of birth. With the cessation of birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, 
and despair cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. Now, if you're not accustomed to the traditional language of the suttas, that may sound like a lot of gobbledygook. But if you take it line by line, the Buddha very systematically and clearly guides us from the experience of seeing something, anything, pleasing or unpleasing, to the experience of the mind that is completely free of suffering, right to liberation. It happens on contact. Now, of course, this sutta then has exactly the same paragraph repeated for when hearing a sound with the ear, when smelling a, uh, a scent with the nose, when tasting a, with the tongue, and with thinking a thought with the mind. So it goes through all of the senses and body contact as well, tactile sensations. But it's this basic progression of having mindfulness to the experience that we're having, recognizing the feeling of whether it's pleasant or painful, and most critically, noticing what the mind does with it. Does it favor it or oppose it? Do we invest the extra energy of favoring and opposing, of liking or not liking, into our experience? If so, whether it's liking or even not liking, that's all embodied in the way the Buddha describes delighting it. Delighting refers to an attachment or a clinging or that extra investment of energy into experience. When we, don't, when we simply feel a feeling as it is, without that extra clinging of favoring and opposing, then the mind unravels from the habit of suffering. And oddly enough, as entrenched as it is, suffering is just a habit. It's not more than that. It's just a habit. It's just really deeply ingrained. But it is something that we can unravel. We will have some moments in our life which are pleasant and pleasing, and some moments which are unpleasant. And many will be not distinctly one way or the other. This whole mass of feeling, mess of feeling, conglomerations of feeling, is what life is, is, it includes. And for the most part, it's beyond what we can predict and beyond what we can control. It's simply one of the truths of life, that in life there is pain and there is pleasure. And we're not going to change that. So the question in practice isn't trying to get more pleasant experiences and less unpleasant experiences. That, leads to, that, that effort leads to suffering. The question in practice simply is, are we going to be tossed about, pushed and pulled in this basic fact of pleasure and pain? Or can we stay steady in the face of these shifts? Christopher Titmus, my Vipassana teacher, defined equanimity as upeka expresses a steadfast response to the forces of attraction and aversion, whether the impulses are of pleasure or of pain, from within or without. So equanimity implies steadiness, balance, we're equanimous, we're peaceful, we're accepting. These are all qualities that reveal a deep understanding that things are the way that they are. So it's a, equanimity implies a quality of mind that stays balanced in the face of these three kinds of feeling, free from the hab- habit of grasping, aversion, or indifference. It's usually 
the habit of grasping that accompanies a pleasant feeling and it's usually the habit of aversion that accompanies an unpleasant feeling and it's usually a habit of indifference which accompanies a neutral feeling. With equanimity we stay equally present to all of them and understanding and wisdom unfolds that sees the nature of feeling itself. In the numerical discourses of the Buddha, the, the next text the Sutta study is going to start with, there's another verse I like, and it says, Just as a rocky mountain is not moved by storms, so sights, sounds, tastes, smells, contacts, and ideas, whether desirable or undesirable, will never stir one of steady nature whose mind is firm and free. So we need equanimity to remain balanced and present in this movement between pleasant and painful experiences. But how do we develop equanimity? Obstacles are wonderful places to both refine our equanimity and test our poise and balance in life. Mindfulness practice develops equanimity by seeing what is without judging. Concentration practice develops steadiness and calmness, that non-reactive stability, simply by steadily returning again and again to our chosen object of meditation. The mind will naturally become less sticky and more equanimous, less reactive and more steady as the concentration deepens. Just by coming back again and again and again to the breath. And life cultivates equanimity because as we develop and open more and more to the daily experiences, all those changes that occur just by waking up in the morning and having breakfast and going to work and trying to find a parking place and trying to get there on time and answering the telephone and writing the reports and going through the mail and getting all the junk mail and going through the emails and fixing some little problem that goes with some technical whatever and trying to remember how to use the remote control on the television and all of the things that we do in a day, cooking dinner, talking with our families, having a social life. All of these events that compose our days, we can bring a quality of interest, clarity, and openness with that stability of equanimity. So that equanimity is the quality of heart that is present in the midst of life. So that we're not equal to all things. We're equally close to all things not only willing to be close to the things that we like, but we're equally close to all things that occur in our life. So equanimity is, um, is cultivated generally in these four categories, with obstacles, with mindfulness, with concentration, and with life. And also there's a Brahma-Vihara practice which um, specifically addresses um, equanimity through the repetition of a phrase, which I'll speak about a little later. I want to first suggest a few very practical ways of developing equanimity. If anyone is interested in cultivating equanimity, there are lots of things you can do. And one of them is to just push yourself a little bit 
around anything that's difficult. I don't mean a lot. I mean a little bit because you want to work with the factor of mind. You don't want to get involved in resistance. And I've often done this on during meditations. Um, how many people sit most days? Okay, most of you. How many of you sit for about the same number of minutes each day? Okay, most, most of the same. If you're sitting for 45 minutes, every now and then, maybe once a week, sit for a different number of minutes. Try 50 minutes. Make it, it has to be more though. <laughs> Do it an hour. Do it 64 minutes. If you're sitting for 20 minutes, try it for 35 minutes. Something to extend yourself a little bit. Um, I was the, the resident teacher in um, Santa Fe and Albuquerque for a couple of years. And when I first went there, um, there I, I, I um, filled in for two years after their teacher had left. And um, their teacher had always kept a very clear schedule of 45 minutes sitting. Well, I didn't see what was wrong with the 52 minutes sitting. So after I was there maybe just a couple of weeks, and I thought, okay, we're going to go for 52 minutes. And I didn't tell them, of course. I just waited to ring the bell. It's only seven minutes. Nobody in there was going to die. You would not believe the squirming, the coughing, the clearing the throat, the trying to get my attention, the thinking something was really wrong. It's very interesting to see how we can develop a, a, an attachment even around our spiritual methods and techniques. Can we? I think those seven minutes were for some people in that room the first real meditation chance that they've had because the first 45 were only habit. May have been a habit of mindfulness, but it wasn't taking them any further. Sometimes we need a little obstacle, even if it's just a couple of minutes. So I encourage you, everyone who's got a well-established practice, add seven minutes once a week, just to see what you do. You might find that your practice is different in those seven minutes. You might find there's no difference at all. But give yourself the chance to see. It's also very helpful when you're sitting on a day long or even just at the end of if you come to a sitting group like this and then the bell rings. Well, we don't have to just like all do our thing moment all together just because the bell rang. See if you can sit through the transitions so that you're very conscious of when you choose to open the eyes. We don't need to like hear the bell and then eyes pop open and meditation over. It doesn't need to have a trigger a response like that. So hear the bell and then sense for yourself when you're ready to move. And you may end up sitting 10 or 15 minutes longer. You may end up opening your eyes in the middle of the talk. You may end up sitting after the talk a few minutes until everybody sort of fiddles out. Notice what happens in your mind and body, what thoughts occur as you're doing that. And see if you can just settle in This is a very interesting practice, especially on retreats, when, when there's a swell of energy, or here actually, you know, when if 70 people all stand up and move out, the tendency, of course, is to just move with that wave. But equanimity is, uh, is more like a rock image. And see if you can just settle in to a resting period as the wave passes through you.
and then get up whenever you're ready. It's also really helpful when sitting to make a resolve sometimes to not move. And that includes everything. That means not shifting, not scratching, not adjusting your posture, not blowing your nose, not clearing your throat. Really, for some period, you might take 15 minutes in a meditation to really stay still. And by having an inner resolve to explore that stillness, you can settle into a quality of equanimity. And you'll notice very quickly when there isn't equanimity. I like to do this, especially if there's like an ant crawling across my hand, just to to settle in with equanimity to an, an unpleasant experience that tickles but is completely harmless. And to use those kinds of situations Situations perhaps that are of inconvenience more than anything else to practice equanimity. And we can do that in meditation. So a fly walking on the face or an ant crawling across the hand is kind of inconvenient. Or a tiny bit of coolness or a tiny bit of heat, you know, rather than grab for the blanket, just experience it with equanimity. But life gives us an awful lot of experiences of inconvenience. Something breaks and has to be fixed. Can we do that with equanimity? Um, something We need something done um, and we can't get a hold of the person who we need to help us do it. Um, we can't find a parking place and we're late for a medical appointment. Can we experience these kinds of things with equanimity? I was teaching up in Seattle and just returned Friday. I had allowed two hours the airport, you know, you're supposed to allow two hours. Usually I get to the gate an hour and a half in advance and nobody's there. Um, Well, my shuttle didn't show up. So I waited about 15 minutes and then called them. They called the driver, couldn't find the driver. So it was now about 20 minutes, called a taxi. The taxi was going to take about 20 to 30 minutes to get to my, to get to where I was, then to, to get to the airport. I thought, okay, it's fine. We're still, I'm still going to be fine. I got to the airport. And I wasn't, I wasn't rattled. It was okay. I just went going step by step through. Get in line for the, those, machi- those machines. You have to check yourself in these days. Um, and then all the computers go down. The entire line of computers <laughs> all go down. So everybody's just standing there and the line's backing up and backing up and backing up when we're all like next to our little machines waiting them for them to turn on again. They turn on. And there's no paper for the little, um, what do you call it, those little baggage things. I'm looking at my clock thinking, this is the time to practice equanimity or panic. (laughs) I'm still out here and it's boarding in five minutes. (laughs) Um, I did get on the plane and my baggage got on the plane. It worked out fine, but it was really at the last minute. And when I'm racing down, of course they were already boarding, but it worked out fine. But it was a time to reflect. I had a choice. And panicking wasn't actually going to make them put in the printing paper any faster. So it was a better option to recognize the swell of energy that comes. And it's very fast. It was like, I, I almost I wanted to get anxious and angry and tell them to hurry and that my plane is, and that wouldn't help. So I could feel that energy and then just let it dissipate and rest more in just standing there and breathing and making sure that I got my turn next. 
I wasn't like letting everybody go in front of me, but not adding anything emotional extra to it. So you, I'll bet there's every day of our lives that we have a situation like that when we can make a choice one way or another. And the more you find that moment when the energy is rising up to let it dissipate, not squelch it and not repress it. You have to find a way to let it literally dissipate. And you'll have to sense that for yourself because you can't put a lid on that energy. You really have to recognize that you don't need it and then let it poof and settle into a place of stillness. Illnesses and accidents are also times that require a lot of equanimity. Sometimes the tragedies in our life or the unexpected um, uh, dangers require that quality of, of patience and clarity. But equanimity is not only developed in the painful areas. We also need to be present when we're and equanimous when we're flattered, when we're praised, and when we're successful. Those are equally dangerous moments. And our, our judgment can be equally um, hampered and impaired in times when we are flattered. If you've ever been conned in any area of your life, whether it was in a relationship or whether it was for money or this or that, it's that it's very often um, um, a lack of mindfulness or equanimity around that quality of being flattered or being praised that makes one very vulnerable. There's a deep happiness that comes with equanimity that's far more satisfying than excitement or thrill or jubilation. In fact, equanimity is described as one of the highest forms of happiness. It's a practice that can also be very consciously developed through the Brahma Viharas, where we take equanimity and focus our attention on the development of just this factor. In the system of the Brahma Viharas of metta, loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, joy, oh, brief pitch. There are flyers out there for a joy course that I'm teaching here <laughs> in August. And equanimity. Those are the four Brahma Viharas, upeka, equanimity. When we work with upeka, equanimity, we use the phrase, all beings are the heirs of their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. If you contemplate this phrase, it brings forth a depth of wisdom that really understands things are the way that they are. We may shorten the phrase when we do the practice, of course, to something simple as may I accept things as they are, or may I find peace and equanimity, or may I be open and balanced things that just incline us towards that quality of equanimity. But equanimity itself is classically understood as a quality that recognizes things as they are, that doesn't attempt to control the results, that sees both the pleasant and the painful, the happy and the unhappy. All beings are the heirs of their own actions or karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions not upon my wishes for them. Equanimity matures when we experience whatever is occurring in our life, the praise, the success, and the pain, the tragedies, with a mind that is so balanced that we're not thrown off by it, 
because we understand that things that occur occur due to causes and conditions. If we're not balanced, we might start to notice some of the signs of being caught in reactivity. And one of the very easy ones to, to feel is when an, a sense of, I call it energy that rises up, but it's a sense of imperative, of I've got to, it's got to be this way. Kind of a sense of ultimatum, I must have it. Or you must do this. If you feel that sense of it's got to be a certain way, that's a good opportunity to look into what's happening and a good chance to cultivate a little more equanimity. Because in that moment of sensing that, that urgency, that ultimatum, you're feeling the way that the mind is caught in a reactive pattern. Just by feeling the response to this energy, and really feel it. It's not going to feel nice, I guarantee that, because it's suffering. But you have to feel it anyway. Bring mindfulness to this lack of equanimity, this demandingness. And then as you understand the demandingness and recognize the pain of it, it will dissipate. And then that mindfulness itself brings a balancing quality, and you can rest more deeply in a sense of equanimity as experience flows by. With wisdom, we naturally prefer the ease and the peace of equanimity and mindfulness over sensory pleasures. So mindfulness and slowing downs really helps a lot. When I notice this sense of the swell of energy arising within me to want something to be a certain way now, then I stop. I feel my feet on the ground. I just have a sense of standing and being there. Feeling my feet physically standing on the ground, but also sense where I'm standing emotionally. So that I'm aware of my present experience in the action. Whether the reaction is I want something now or I don't want something now, whether it's with desire or aversion, that reactivity is just riddled with dukkha and self-interest. Equanimity has the tremendous power of decentering self-interest. And it lets us abide with the truth of the present moment that is beyond our preferences. Many of you will know the verse from the Third Zen Patriarch. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. Equanimity reveals a very lovely and smooth way of relating to experience. It's so lovely that it can sometimes be confused with freedom or liberation. One time I was doing a four-month Brahma Vihara retreat in England and when I fell into the, when I was working with the equanimity section and slipped very deep into the states of equanimity, 
it was deliciously cool. I completely cooled out. No reactivity at all around desire or aversion. Just pleasant feeling when pleasant feeling arose, unpleasant feeling when unpleasant feeling arose. And those experiences were fairly rare because when equanimity is strong, most things are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. They're just what they are. Tingling is tingling. Hot is hot. And the mind was very cool, very even, very um, lovely. Yeah. And in my arrogance, I went into an interview, very happy that I was in this equanimous state, and described the experience of mind completely free from desire and aversion, completely beyond reactivity or preference. And I could give all these illustrations of things each day because I was so mindful of things that I would normally react to and there was no reaction. Fortunately, my teacher was very compassionate and yet clear. It was Christopher Titmus, And he just quietly reminded me that equanimity was a conditioned state. It feels like liberation. It's really an extraordinary experience of mind that I wish for all of you and to have it as sustained as possible. There's, it's just an extraordinary degree of peace and happiness. And yet, it's conditioned. It's vital in life and practice, but it's a relative quality of mind and not the end of the path. The fact that I and mine are still operating, even in those deep states of equanimity, there still can be the construction of the sense of the one who is feeling equanimous, the meditator. And that very sense of being free from desire and aversion, of feeling this extraordinary state of mind, was the bondage. And it's that bondage that reveals, not that reveals the limitations of equanimity. So we know its value and we cultivate it, but we also know where it ends its limitations, which doesn't prevent us from cultivating it. It just keeps us knowing that it too is a conditioned and impermanent state. So even equanimity with the extraordinary happiness and peace that is associated with it must be seen for what it is. So don't underestimate the importance or the strength of this steadiness, but know what it is. It feels like liberation but there's still work that must be done. Even when the mind is not so gross that it's compelled to move with desire and aversion, when it's not grasping after desires or withdrawing from painful situations, if there's still the position of an experiencer, an I position, or a position from which we take that experience to be mine, it's not freedom. As one friend and teacher told me, as long as there is an I, Shaila, there's still work that needs to be done. I'd like to have a moment or two of silence and then I'll um, end with a, a, a poem from T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets.
from the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. There are three conditions which often look alike, yet differ completely, flourish in the same hedgerow. Attachment to self and to things and to persons. Detachment from self and from things and from persons. And growing between them, indifference. Which resembles the others as death resembles life. Being between two lives, unflowering. Between the live and the dead nettle. This is the use of memory. For liberation, not less of love but expanding of love beyond desire, and so liberation from the future as well as the past. Thus, love of a country begins as attachment to our own field of action and comes to find that action of little importance. Though never indifferent, history may be servitude, history may be freedom. See now, they vanish, the faces, the places, with the self which, as it could, loved them, to become renewed, transfigured in another pattern. Have a lovely afternoon. Thank you for your attention.